We are glad that you're here and that you're visiting with us or that you're here all the time. We are thankful for your presence and we invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Lord willing, on Tuesday night we will study Psalm 36 together. And Lord willing, Saturday morning uh, our children's class will begin with dealing with the book of Exodus and telling those stories. What a blessing it was to be able to hand out Bibles. The actual number came in all to 365, the same as the days of the year. Thank you for all who participated and pray that the Lord will open the hearts of those that were given the word that they may respond. But I want to tell you something. If we had stood there for five days and not handed out a one, it would have been a success. It would have been a success. How much more so when we are blessed with that reception? And thank you for all who prayed for the Lord truly sent us to a place and to a store manager who could not have been kinder and more receptive to us. Matthew 5, beginning with verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, you good for nothing, and translations vary a good amount right there. You good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. But whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponents at law while you are with him on the way. So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last sin. In this sermon, Jesus is talking about avoiding violence and avoiding hate. You've heard it said, the ancients were told, but I say to you, notice this format found six times in verses 21 through 48. You have heard it said, or it was said, and then he says, but I say to you, 
You have heard that it was said. And he quotes from the scripture. From Exodus 20 and verse 13. You shall not commit murder. He's not criticizing that law. But he is stating that you're not understanding the point. If you simply limit this to the outward act of violence. He is not changing the law and the prophets. As one writer used the illustration that they took some sculptures that had been covered for years, covered with grime and and dirt, and they sought to restore them. When they restored those sculptures, They tried to remove all the dirt and all the grime. They weren't adding anything to the sculpture. They were letting you see it in all its glory. And in the same way, with what God has said, you shall not murder. Jesus is not adding to it, nor taking from it. Jesus is showing this in all its glory. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother. Now I ask you again to look at your text. In verse 22, look at your Bibles. Some of your versions will have anyone who is angry without cause. Some versions will not have that. Now for those of you in our high school class, who have been in the high school class, and we're in the high school class recently that Josh and I taught, I'm going to ask you this afterwards if I see it. So if you don't know the answer... You might want to hide. What do we call it in textual criticism when you're studying to try to find what God has actually said when there is good evidence for a significant difference in the text? There's good evidence for it. And it makes a difference in the interpretation. Oh, I am confident that the high school students are going to come up with that. What are the two words, the two magic words I'm looking for? Those words without cause may have been added because someone had trouble believing what Jesus was saying. Whoever is angry with his brother. And there is an anger in the Bible that's justified. Jesus looked about him with anger in the synagogue in Mark 3, in verse 5. When they were forbidding the little children, forbidding the little children to come to him in Mark 10, 14. He looked around him with anger. There's a legitimate anger, but we know how often it is illegitimate. And that is what Jesus addresses 
And he says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The same penalty that he mentioned in verse 21 for murder is the the penalty for anger. Whoever says to him, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Now, some of your translations have reka there, which is an Aramaic word used only here in the Bible, which seems to mean something like empty. But none of us have ever been tempted to use that word of someone else because we don't know that word. That is why there's a difficulty in translations. Do we translate things literally or do we give a dynamic equivalent? And the answers aren't always easy. Some translations translate this literally, whoever says to his brother, Reka. Others give a dynamic equivalent of that. Whoever says, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty to go into fiery hell. In that statement... Guilty enough to go into hell. Certainly wakes us up out of apathy. If we were looking at these words these way. Therefore, in light of how serious this is, the Bible uses two illustrations... To emphasize the need to seek reconciliation and to seek it urgently. Urgently. If you are presenting your offering before the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. This therefore links this with what has just been said. This text is not minimizing the importance of offering a gift at the altar. It really Pitch that illustration because it is something that the hearers of Jesus would have regarded as being of utmost importance, of the greatest seriousness. But this responsibility of reconciliation is so profound and so great that even if you are in the midst of the most sacred of duties and you recognize my brother is something against me that I have wronged him that I have sinned him you leave your guilt before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother first and then come and present your offering is that speaking with absolute literalness Or is that hyperbole, an intended exaggeration for emphasis? You know, later Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
don't think that's meant to be literal. There Jesus is stressing, not that you turn the other cheek and say, try this one too. Jesus is just saying you are willing to take another insult instead of paying back and doing wrong. I, I don't know which it is here. And I think a case can be made for either side that this is hyperbole, that this is, that this is literal. But the point is this responsibility is so urgent that you leave all, even the most profound of duties, to be reconciled. Leave, be reconciled, and return. But I will tell you this. It's easier to go to church than to do this. In verse 25 and 26, a second illustration. He said, make friends quickly with your opponent. Someone is taking you to court. And you're on the way there. Make friends quickly with your opponent while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge is the officer and you be thrown into prison. Debtors' prisons, common matters in that day and time and through much of human history and most societies, debtors' prison. And he says, truly I say to you, Amen, I say to you, you will not come out until you have paid the last cent. You see the same kind of thing in Matthew 18, 34. His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now, Jesus gives this little parable about legal matters and someone suing you and taking you to court and don't make an agreement with him. This is not legal advice on an out-of-court settlement. This is, again, emphasizing the seriousness, the urgency, the priority of seeking reconciliation. It is interesting that this same passage is used in Luke 12, verses 58 and 59. The same kind of statement. And that statement is used in the context of us seeking reconciliation for God. We are all inevitably headed toward death and judgment. And make reconciliation with God a priority a matter of utmost urgency. Those are profound words. Let's read them again. You have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry shall be guilty before the court. 
Angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and remember there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponents at law while you are with him on the way. So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out until you have paid the last sin. I want to make three points from this text. Jesus' teaching shows his identity. Before we get to this point, I, I do want to say something that I neglected to say before. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, I don't think that Jesus is stating that no Jewish rabbi or no Jewish student had ever recognized that. Because one of the arguments you'll see is sometimes, well, we can produce this quote from a Jewish rabbi or this quote from someone who said something very similar to what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is claiming that no one has ever recognized it, but he is saying that is not the common interpretation. These people have heard of this. They have heard the focus on the outward act. Jesus deals with a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. The prophets did not preach the way that Jesus did. Jesus says, you have heard, but I say to you, as we already stated, six times he says this. Six times he says this. The prophets did not preach this way. The prophet said, this is what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord. The rabbis did not teach that way. The rabbis were all the time referring to this rabbi or that rabbi or this source or that source. To them, the interpretation of the law was an ever ongoing matter. Jesus says, you have heard But I say, Jesus does not refer to a source of authority outside himself. He does not say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say to you. Jesus does not refer to any heavenly vision he has. He says, but I say to you. This is the meaning of he is teaching them like one with authority and not as the scribes. But I would say. In this particular matter, I teach, and those, the rest of you who do teach and preach, that you teach and preach more like the scribes than we do like Jesus. Because Jesus' teaching is tied to who He is. He is unique. You have heard it said, but I say to you, And in the Sermon on the Mount, and some missed enough, 
But in the Sermon on the Mount, there is a lot that is said about the unique identity of Jesus. Jesus talked about blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In Matthew 5 and verse 10. And then he talked about if you are persecuted because of me. In Matthew 7 verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father that is in heaven. And on that day many will say to me that they did all these wonderful works in his name. But I will say, I never knew you. Our eternal destiny depends on our response to him. You have heard it said. But I say to you. And everyone who hears the words of Jesus. Doesn't pay attention to them. Is like a foolish man. Who builds his house on the sand. And the storm winds blow. And the storms come. And his house demolishes. Because it's not built on a solid foundation. But everyone who hears the words of Jesus. And builds on them. And does them. And obeys them. He is like the man who built on a solid foundation. Do you see all of these pulling? Tied to who he is. do with Jesus. It is hard for people to say that Jesus is evil and sinister. When he taught love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who persecute you. It's hard to say he's evil. When he taught that and he lived that. No, we can't say Jesus is evil. His enemies have trouble saying he's evil. But they don't want to accept that he's God come in the flesh. That our eternal destiny depends on him. They don't want to accept that. So they say, well, Jesus was a good man. He was a good man who did good teaching. Jesus was a good man. He went about doing good. Acts 10, 38. But no, Jesus is God come in the flesh. And even in this very sermon that he sometimes praised for its noble ethic and its tremendous standards in this sermon, Jesus is constantly calling attention to who he is, even in the way that he teaches, even in subtle ways. You have heard it said, but I say to you. 
No. We hang on His every word. Because we believe He was God coming to flesh. We believe who, what He said about who He is. How about this moral teaching of this passage? Did you notice the word brother is very prominent here? It's used in verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. In verse 23, therefore if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. In verse 24, leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother. All of these instances use this particular word brother. And it is emphasizing not only the horrible evil, the horrible evil of taking a brother's life, but the horrible evil of even hating or speaking evil of them, insulting them. Now, one of the reasons I highlight that particular word, brother, is to tie this text with Old Testament accounts that you're familiar with. To tie this with some passages to to show that what Jesus is teaching is what has been stated in the law all along. Cain and Abel. Do you know the word brother is used at least seven times in a description of their relationship in Genesis chapter 4? The Bible tells us that Eve conceived. She gave birth to a son, Cain, and then his brother Abel. And the Bible tells us that Cain brought an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought of the firstlings of the flocks and their offspring. The Lord in respect for Cain, the Lord, listen, we'll say this. There's never a discrepancy between my telling of the story and the Bible. Take the Bible. Okay. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he did not have regard. And God confronts Cain. And Cain and says to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Cain is described as being angry in Genesis 4 verse 5. And God confronts him about that. Why are you angry? And he tells him, That sin is waiting to to devour him. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. Sin is pictured as a lion at the door. Waiting to devour Cain. If Cain gives it an opening. And Cain goes out into the field. 
with Abel, his brother. And Cain arose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. And that's why. But I'm saying to you, that if you're angry with your brother, or if you hurl insults at them, that you're already guilty of the things that will lead to murder. In Genesis 37, the Bible tells us it describes the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. It describes that relationship as a brother or brother's relationship repeatedly. At least, at least 19 times. And remember, Joseph brought back a bad report about his brothers. And his father made him a special coat that distinguished him. And the Bible says in Genesis 37, 4, his brothers hated him. And could not speak to him peacefully. He has a dream. He has a dream of them all harvesting in the field. And their sheaves bow down to his sheep. And Genesis 37, 5 says they hated him because of that. They hated him more. And then he has another dream. And they hate him even more. In Genesis 37, in verse 8. And then the Bible says they were jealous of him. And so when Joseph is sent, Joseph is sent to go out and check on his brothers. His father is nowhere around to look over the circumstance or to see what's going on. His brother says, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. See what will happen to his dream. Where does anger lead? Where does hate lead? Where does this kind of insult lead? Leads to murder. Now we know that Reuben said throw him in the pit. He wanted to rescue him. Eventually Judah says sell him. They don't kill him like Cain killed Abel. But they are ever bit as guilty. And 1 John 3 uses the illustration of Cain and Abel and how Cain slew his brothers. It's the only Old Testament account that John relates in 1 John. And he says, we know that we're saved in verse 14, 1 John 3, 14. We know we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates is a murderer. Isn't that an extension of what Jesus said? 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who says he does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
Now I could stand up here and give you illustrations that would absolutely horrify all of us. And I'm confident that would be in any audience. And I'm going to give one of them. It was the 1960s. It was a turbulent time in the world, in the country, a turbulent time among churches for different reasons. And this story, which has been told to me in separate discussions with a whole list of older preachers who lived through these days. And there was a congregation, and they called the place. There was a congregation where there was a dispute among brethren as to how to handle the treasury. And one set of brethren decided, they met, and they decided they would change the locks from the meeting house and shut out the other group. And so they changed the locks and they all had keys to match it. Well, none of those in the other group did. And the other group, and don't ask me how they did it, because I've asked and never gotten an answer. The other group got a telephone and ran down the door. I think this verse was alluded to earlier. Could you imagine? Above that meeting plate, being written, all men shall know that you're my disciples because you love one another. Now, I can give you illustrations like that, and we're all, oh my, that's just so terrible. How are you doing with it? We may not be physical brothers like Cain and Abel were, or like Joseph and his brothers were. But as I found myself a couple of days ago driving in town behind a vehicle with a cross on the back, and I could see what it said, small print, brothers in blood. And that's what we are. And how 
are we doing? And I could... That all kinds of respected brethren have told me that there's no greater problem I face than this. insignificant matter. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says a lot about eternity. He talks about blessed are the persecuted, for the reward in heaven is great. He talks about laying up treasures in heaven, not upon earth. He holds out to us the blessing of heaven. And He warns us. With the judgment of hell. This is Jesus speaking. Look at verse 22 again. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough. To go into fiery hell. I would say that punctuates what he is saying as being of the most extreme importance. Our eternity depends on our response to Him. At the end of this sermon, Jesus will encourage us to enter the straight gate in the narrow way and avoid the broad way. And here, He is doing the same. May God help us to apply this to our lives and to live it. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, how awesome and how mighty you are. And how much, how deeply you've loved us. And Lord, your love is a model for ours. We look around us and we see how other people are doing and we can feel pretty comfortable.
But when we hear your words in your presence, we are humbled. We ask for your forgiveness and your help to live these words. To take your truth seriously and to build our lives on it. Hold us in your hand and bring us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say to all who are here today, And particularly to those who are not in a right relationship with God. Remember, everything is hinging on our response to God. Enter at the straight gate. For straight is the way and narrow the path that leads to life. And few there be that find it, but broad is the gate, and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many will go in thereat. God in His mercy has given us the promise of hope in heaven. But the stakes are high, and the issue is of great importance. In making our life right with God. If you believe Jesus died for you. If you believe it and you're determined to turn from your sins in repentance. Come and be baptized and have all your sins washed away. We invite you to do so as we stand and sing. Number 219. 219. How sweet, how heavenly. 219. Mm -hmm. So, how sweet, how heavenly.